Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Hi, yes, we are back. Great to be back with you for another week. I am Janice Leibovitz, and you are my People of the Book. I am here today, and my guest Jody Samuels is in Israel. At her home, and it's great to have you with me, Jody. Hi, Janice. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time out to chat with with us today. And in case you have not been following along, Jody Samuels is an author. She's a community activist. She's a connector, a speaker. She is an advocate for change, and she's also a non-profit leader. She writes for the Times of Israel as well. She blogs for them, and we are going to be chatting today specifically about her fabulous new book, which is titled Chutzpah, Wisdom, and Wine. And if that doesn't want to make you pick that up and read it, I don't know what what will make you want to read a book like that. And the best news is... Up until now, it's been available online, but it is going to be available in Joburg, hopefully next week, at the Kollel Bookshop for the cost of 200 Rand. And Jody, we are very excited about that. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I'm back and I'm chatting to Jody Samuels, who is in um, hopefully much warmer than South Africa, Israel. (laughs) Yeah, because we're quite chilly over here at the moment. So I hope you're a lot warmer than we are, Jody. Um, Very, very hot. (laughs) So in case you guys haven't guessed, Jody is South African. I don't really call people ex-South African. You're not an ex-South African. You're South African. (laughs) (laughs) And so as I said, you're currently in Israel and you you live there. That's that's your home. But um, you you got there by quite a roundabout journey. You and your husband and your family, your beautiful family. You you lived in quite a few places. So tell us a bit about that. Where you've been, where you journeyed to, where you lived on your way to making Aliyah. <laughs> Okay, so we were the true, true definition of wandering Jews, and we're now finally home, but we, I met my husband in my gap year after high school in Israel, and we had no money, and he was a doctor, he was studying medicine at the time, and it was very hard as a doctor to get a decent job, so we decided a decent job in Israel, and we had student loans, so we decided if you go live in these outback places as a doctor, you can make money, pay off your student loans because, of course, you're earning dollars and paying it off in rands. And we would have this two-year plan to go move to Israel. And that two-year plan took 23 years. And it took <laughs> us on a journey that started off. We started off in these, like, outback places in New Zealand. And then from there, we went to Australia where we lived in places like Tasmania, which is the little island of Australia, um, we also worked in that real, real outback of Australia where my husband worked for the Flying Doctor Service. 
and oh, wow. he was yeah like real real adventures and um where he was like the only connection to real life and they would take him from the base hospital fly him in um he would have to pick up the mail and the pharmacy stuff and in those days video cassettes videos yes and, <laughs> and he would have to take all the stuff to the next like little town see people bring back the mail bring back the videos oh, um, wow. bring back six people so we really lived in these outback places which was definitely an adventure and then from there we went to a place called the gold coast in australia and then we went to sydney and then we won green cards in the green card lotto which is an opportunity. It's like a diversity visa. 50,000 people win green cards a year. We won green cards. And we thought we went to the U.S. to validate the green cards because, you know, when you're South African, the more, the more passports, the better. Yes. <laughs> we went, we went to validate the green cards. And while we were there, my husband met someone who offered him a job that week. And the next thing, we were going to New York, but New York was just going to be for a year. And it turned into 15 years. <laughs> and then from <laughs> it, that seems then, to seem to have been the story of your life. <laughs> and then we were in Israel in 2014, which was the year when there was the war, um, with the missiles, with Gaza. And I joke about it, but I say Hamas was our aliyah, shaliyah. Um, while I was here, I had this sort of moment thinking, I really do want to live in a more meaningful society. My husband had been itching. I had, like, along the way, was, like, living like a princess in Manhattan, and I was very happy there, and my husband always wanted my kids to move to Israel. And I was like, you know, maybe I'll give this a one-year try. So I was very adamant it was one year. We, after 23 years of talking about coming to Israel, we came back after we had spent the summer in Israel, and we came back, put our kids in school in New York, and after two weeks, we realized if we go and go to Israel, we have a special needs child. We need to go when she's younger and capture the school year that she could still finish off kindergarten. So suddenly, two weeks later, we were in Israel and we didn't even pack up our apartment in New York. We arrived. We're going to do a one year stay only because I wasn't sure. Well, we're almost six years here. So that's been my journey. Oh, wow. Um, we're going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about that um, a little bit later because um, for those who are going to read the book, you'll understand that, I mean, Jody, you do make it sound <laughs> quite simple and quite easy going. Oh, we decided to go there. We went there. And then we went here and we decided to make Aliyah. We picked up and we left. And it was not quite that easy or quite simple. You went through quite a lot of difficulty, a lot of challenges that motivated you to to actually pick up and move to Israel, even though Aliyah was always your ultimate goal. Um, so we're going to get to that a bit later. But you have some quite amusing stories in, in the book, and I do love the way you're, you've constructed the book. Um, the actual chapters, you start off all with, with quotes from Talmud and Pergavot and um, from, from um, anonymous quotes, which is beautiful. But the chapters are actually interspersed with, with anecdotes and, and stories that, that you reminisce about, which you've entitled Tales of a Modern Jewish Woman, which I love. And 
there are some quite amusing stories about your journey to becoming orthodox, which you, which was not your upbringing. Correct. <laughs> so, <laughs> so tell us about that. So, although I grew up in Glen Hazel, in the in the heart of the Jewish ghetto of Johannesburg, <laughs> I did not. In grow the shtetl. In the shtetl. I did not grow up religious at all. I went to government schools and in fact, like my mom taught at Yeshiva College for many years, but she was a secular studies teacher and we would like be the family going out to our car on Saturday mornings and all the kids would walk past and they'd be like, good Shabbos, good Shabbos. And I'd be like, I'm never going to be one of them. The Yami Army, the God Squad. I was very adamant that was those people and not me, but um, I landed up going, changing from Northview High School to Eden College and going on the bus to school. I met some religious kids who were from Yeshiva College and they asked me one Friday, so will we see you at Shul tonight? And I was like, sure, um, okay. And that was the beginning of my Jewish journey, starting to go to shul to, well, at least I thought I was going to meet guys, but apparently I went to meet God <laughs> instead. Mm. It's amazing um, what we find when we're looking for something else. And yeah. I remember, and, and you describe this really well, um, you know, because I, uh, you know, grew up probably, um, I think you, you are quite a bit younger than me, but we probably grew up in similar environments. I remember back in the day, and I don't hear so much about this now, but the worst thing that could happen and the worst thing that the parents spoke about was, oi vey, my child wants to keep kosher. It was like, you know, you you would think that they would prefer their child to come home and, and tell them that, that they were actually being arrested for something, for some crime they'd committed. Because <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. It was just, you know, how could they how could they do this to me? And, exactly. and the way you described this was exactly how I remembered this growing up when I heard stories about, you know, kids who, who were becoming more religious and their parents were, would actually lament over this, that it was just the most dreaded thing that could happen to them. And you would think that, that they would actually be so happy that their, their child was on the right path, but they just didn't see it that way. Yeah. And not um, no, not in those days. Mm. I, I think possibly now it seems to have changed a bit. You don't hear those stories as much anymore, and one would hope that that things have changed and we're possibly a bit more positive towards um, being more orthodox. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Maybe now because it's easier. Um, you know, if your child does decide to go that route, you know, you can just go to the shops. Buy everything kosher. I think back in the day it wasn't as easy. Um, right. Now it is easier. So maybe. Think, yeah, sorry. No, I was going to say, I think sometimes parents felt we were rejecting their culture. We were rejecting everything they gave us. Yes. Like, how could you do that? You know, how could you, how could you, you know, we brought you up one way and, you know, you've, gone a completely different way and you like you say you're rejecting what we've given you and that's not how we brought you up we send you to a, a, a secular school and you're quite you're quite right you're quite right quite correct 
So after the break, we're going to, to get into your life in New York, which um, I found absolutely fascinating. And we're going to chat about that. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. Jody, before the break, we were talking about, you know, um, your journey to becoming more orthodox when you were brought up quite secular. But I want to chat about your life in New York, where you really established yourself and set up Jikni. I don't know, do you call it Jikni? Do you call it Jewish International Connection New York? Yeah, both. Everyone calls them both names. <laughs> so, um, so you settled there. You settled in, I mean, as you, you kept calling it, the biggest Jewish community in the world outside of Israel, which it is. And you were initially quite apprehensive. You had moved from Australia where you were so comfortable. It was um, community-minded. You knew everybody. And you moved to a place which is big and and cold, you don't know people, people don't want to know you, no one's got time to give you the time of day. And you immediately realized that if you felt like that, then there must be other people who felt like that. And you started inviting people over for Shabbat meals. Correct. So how many people are you having for Shabbat tonight? (laughs) Wow. Well, COVID rules limit me to ten. Oh, that's, so we've been that's, oh right. To, you've you've gone back into to into um, quite a heavy lockdown, haven't you? Yeah. So we're not hosting meals at the moment, but most weeks of our lives we host about fifty, sixty people wow. if we in our wow. home. Bigger if we run it an an event. Wow. Tell me how you started off. With, from, from really inviting a few people into a full-blown organization. Okay. So there were two things that happened that really made the journey. So first, when I arrived in New York, I was very, very miserable and did not want to be there. And it just so happened, and this story South Africans will appreciate because you all have South African dads. And I just so happened that my father was on a business trip in New York when I just arrived. And we went out for dinner one night, and right next door, the dinner, there was a bookstore. And we were browsing in the bookstore, and my phone rang. And while I was on the phone, my husband went, sorry, my father went to speak to the attendant who was working, the cashier, young girl. And he said, my daughter just moved here, and she's so miserable. She doesn't know anyone. Please, will you look after her? So after getting over my embarrassment of my father's request, she insisted on taking my number and she called me the next day and invited me to join her for a dinner. And at that dinner, we were in a restaurant and this guy walked in and he's a connector in the community and he looked at me and he always says to people, what are you doing? His name's Steve Eisenberg. For those who've ever been to New York, they all know him. And he said, what are you doing for Shabbat? And I said, no, we just moved here. We don't have any, we don't have any plans. And he invited me for a meal at a family's home. And at that family, I said to him, you know, we would love to host people as well. And he said, oh, that's great. How many people would you host? And I guess most people would say four, six, eight. And we had used to host very big meals in Australia as well. And I said, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 people. And <laughs> So he started. Yeah, not the answer he expected. And in New York City, there's like an abundant supply of young singles 
who are always looking to be connected. And it's like one of the things that are amazing about New York, hundreds and hundreds of young professionals, religious, not religious, go to different families every week for meals. So we started hosting people. So we're already building our network. And then I had been there three weeks in total, and a friend of mine who had been to my events in Australia was studying at Columbia University, and he was doing his MBA, and it was Rosh Hashanah. And he called me up a few days before Rosh Hashanah, knowing our host meals, and said, there's like all these international students who have nowhere to go for Rosh Hashanah. Would we be willing to host a meal for them? And the next thing... I myself was new in the country, but I had 36 people at my home from 30 different countries. And I had an epiphany right there and then that people who are new to a city needed a home away from home, but not just a home away from home, a Jewish home away from home, because I realized that you move to these big cities and a place like New York has everything to offer, and you can land up doing absolutely everything and just never connect with Jewish life. And we felt that people needed a place that was this comfortable kind of non-judgmental Judaism. It didn't matter if you were religious or not religious. If this was your first Shabbat experience, you could go to this place where everybody else was new. We all had a common experience. We were all Jewish. And we started building programming. And immediately the dinners took off. And we actually started. After that, I decided I'm going to run, you guys will all appreciate this, a dinner for South Africans living in New York. (laughs) And the South African dinner was a very big hit. And then I decided to make it Commonwealth countries. And then Commonwealth countries became international. And then we started running Torah classes and social events. And at least up until, I would say, March 4th, when we suddenly, the world changed, we were hosting over 200 events a year in New York City, and wow. about 10,000 people were coming through the door, including Torah classes, social events, networking events, um, and we have a group for younger singles, older singles, couples, and we've had 128 couples get married from coming through our program. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And you didn't only host the meals. I mean, you had people who stayed at your place and I mean you you talk about opening up your home it wasn't just your dinner table I mean you really opened up your home you had people who arrived for dinner and stayed for two weeks you know (laughs) two years sometimes (laughs) wow and I mean this really developed into I mean you know when you think about it you, you kind of wonder why it didn't happen before you you wonder why Nobody developed this idea before. You wonder why every country doesn't have an organization like this, why it doesn't exist all over the world. As you say, you go to New York, you can do everything, experience everything, but you don't get that warmth of hospitality, home hospitality, Jewish hospitality and Jewish warmth, and that that experience of, of being able to have a meal somewhere, especially a Jewish meal or a Shabbos meal, and... You, you wonder why this doesn't exist all over the world. And I, I'm probably planting ideas because I know when someone says something to you, you're like, right, I'm going to do this because you only sleep three <laughs> hours a night. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know, because there's work to be done. <laughs> that's mm. like a quote from your book. Or that's a quote from an essay that, that someone wrote about you because she said you were her hero, which was just beautiful. Mm. And I still don't get the sleeping three hours a night. Sorry. <laughs> um, 
So then you had your kids, had well, your first two children. And did, did they ever say to you, have your kids ever said to you that they just want you to themselves for a Shabbat um, meal or can we just have Shabbat, just the family? How do they feel about all of this? I mean, I know that they, they've been brought up with this chesed and they know that, that you have an, a completely open door policy. Do they ever say to you, can we just do a family Shabbat? I mean, I know that so, now you're doing family Shabbat. We don't have a choice. <laughs> so after this, you'll be having that. You'll be doubling your numbers. But did they ever say anything like that to you? So my kids actually love having guests. I think they've just been brought up in a home that they don't really know what it's like not to have guests. And I have my like famous story of the time I decided to have sinus surgery and I scheduled oh, wow. it for a Friday so I could recover <laughs> on the weekend. And we didn't have guests. And my kids were like, this is so weird. This is so boring. This is not <laughs> fun. And eventually on the Saturday, they were like, Emma, please, can we just invite the neighbors? They just couldn't handle <laughs> not having. So my kids actually prefer, I think, when we have guests, they're used to like a very fun, lively Shabbat. But we do try have Shabbat alone, at least, you know, we travel a lot as a family. And when we're away, we have a lot of, like, family time. So we 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 load all the family time to those times when we're away. And usually when we're home anyway, there's always people living at us, staying at us, popping in. So it would almost be impossible to have a Shabbat alone anyway, even if we wanted to, unless we're right. traveling. Right, because, you know, everyone knows there's that open door policy again. So let's get on to to talking about Kayla. So you you did have um two miscarriages and then you were blessed with Kayla and your your attitude of when you were first initially told that, that Kayla has Down syndrome and you, you switched that initial, very natural question of why me or why us. You switched that to, of course, us. And, well, why wouldn't Hashem pick the family that welcomes everybody? Well, why wouldn't he pick you to have Kayla? And it's 100% correct. I mean, why wouldn't he have chosen your home to bring this, this beautiful Neshama into? Absolutely. And, and from the very beginning, you made it um, your your I wouldn't say your job, but you made it you made it absolutely clear that she was going to be exactly like your other children, and you were going to expect her to fulfil her 100 and as you say, because you're a Jewish mother, her 110 <laughs> percent potential. You got that. You got that so right because we are Jewish mothers. Yes. Um, her 110 percent potential, just like your other children. And I love that, that when you had her in in the in the baby sling, you always had her facing outwards. I thought that. It was just gorgeous. But then you came up against a massive, massive challenge when she was just two years old, when you wanted her to attend the mainstream school that your other two children attended. 
tell us briefly about that. Um, I don't want to give everything away for people who are going to go out and buy the book, which people go out and buy the book. Tell us <laughs> about that. I mean, I, I found it shocking. Yeah. I mean, as you as you say, I mean, these are, these are rabbis, these are orthodox people, these are people who were educating children, and um, I mean, the story is quite horrific. Let's hear it in your words. So I think that when we walked out of the hospital, you know, you check out of the hospital and they check your hospital band to make sure you have the right child and it matches the parent. As we walked out, um, my husband said to me, they should have just branded the word activist across our foreheads because he said <laughs> our lives are never going to be the same. And he didn't actually know then how prophetic his words would be. And ultimately, when we we really realized how much we were going to have to take a stand and be activists for our daughter when we wanted to get her into a two-year-old program. The stated goal of the two-year-old program is communication and socialization skills. And, you know, this, at that point, our kid was just Kayla. At least uh, she was just Kayla, another baby. But when the school rejected us and outright rejected us, and they could not give us any substantial reason except for those people, those children. We realized that we have to take this, take a stand on this. We were objectively living in one of the wealthiest communities in America. You define your like neighborhood by zip code. But yes. in, you know, in all surveys, we were in one of the wealthiest zip codes in the world probably, but certainly in America, with many Jewish resources. And she came to school with a basket of resources provided by New York City. So the school didn't even have to lay anything out. And the answer was no, emphatically no. And no matter how much we appealed to them, and I won't go into the story in detail, but no matter how much we appealed to them, the answer was still no. And we really felt that we had to go on a mission and take a stand because this wasn't just about Kayla. It was about Kayla for us. But we also realized this is about for every special needs child that was being locked out of community. This is about trying to get the community to do what was right, not what was easy. And that became our, that became our mantra. That became our call to action. We're not asking you to do what's easy. Do what's right. And what was right is that according to the law, a child can be included. And we wanted what was her rights under the law. We didn't realize how hard we would have to fight, how dramatic the fight would get. How, And I think for us, something that was really shocking was how many people in our inner circle had absolutely no idea what we were going through or how difficult it was. And at that point, I found my voice because I realized I have to bring the media into this. And I started running public forums. And the next thing I had the media, I suddenly arrived at one of my own events and there was like cameras and lights and TV stations and every um, newspaper. We made it to the London Jewish News and the Australian Jewish News and the South African, I can't remember what the name of the South African paper was at the time. We made our story, made headlines all over the world. And we felt like we have to make some change for and be a voice for all special needs children, for all children who have the right to be included, regardless of their level of functioning. Absolutely. We've just got a question. Um, we're talking about 
Jody Samuel's book, which is called Chutzpah, Wisdom and Wine. And we are hopefully getting that book in at Kolal Bookshop next week. It's going to be available for 200 rand. And yes, that will be available in the bookshop and it is available online as well. We are going to continue with that after the break. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Who is in Israel, her home, and we're talking about her book, Chutzpah, Wisdom and Wine. And before the break, Jody was talking about how because of her Down syndrome child, Kayla, she and her husband, Gavin, became activists for inclusion for all types of children and how she used to turn up at events and find an entire gamut of media there. But now, very interestingly, Jody says that she is actually quite shy. She's not a public speaker. And when teachers at school who were her teachers at school hear that she is speaking at these public events, that she's organizing all these events, they say, but she never used to even open her mouth in class. They're all quite shocked, aren't they, Jody? I think everyone who knows me from my past is <laughs> Even and your parents, right? Me, and everybody who knows me now can't believe there was once a shy Jody. <laughs> um, yeah, because you are, you are a heck of a mover and shaker, and you have been for quite some time. So, it, obviously, this, that whole um, challenge and that battle you fought with that, that school, that, that inclusion battle, something did, something good definitely came of it. <laughs> have to look at the positive. Mm, um, yes. Yeah. So, moving on from there, I mean, you got offers from schools of different religions that were willing to, to do quite the opposite of what the school did. I mean, the school were not willing to offer her a place. They weren't even willing to meet with her. They weren't willing to assess her, nothing. Meanwhile, you got offers from other schools of other religions who were willing to accept her sight unseen. And, and that, quite understandably, did lead you to question your Yiddishkeit and, and where you were in it. And explain, I, I mean, I do understand that that makes perfect sense. Explain that, that part of your journey with this. And I know that that did, um, push you in your Aliyah. And I know it did take a, a few years still. And I know that Aliyah was always the ultimate goal, but this was just, another nudge in that direction. So it seems strange to say that it made you question your journey in Yiddishkeit, but then pushed you further in your journey towards Aliyah. So for me, it was incredibly challenging because I felt as someone who had chosen to become religious and things that like inspired me about being religious were being part of the community. One of like my earliest memories when I go back to my South African days was being invited to people's homes and like seeing siblings stand on a chair and like give, you know, words of Torah over. And I was like, wow, you know, like when I grow up, I want that. And I had aspired for that. And suddenly I'm trying to like live this life and I'm giving to the community and part of the community. 
And they're like, sorry, we don't want your child. And I really had a huge reaction. My husband was always, don't judge Jews by the Jews. You know, don't judge Judaism by the Jews. You know, he was a, he was much more rational about it. <laughs> that's, that's a brilliant quote. I love it. <laughs> but it was very, very hard for me. And I definitely had a lot of questioning. And I do thank Chabad, which was the Chabad on the Upper West Side, which was right near where we lived, who when they, when I went to speak to them, they looked at me and I was, my lip was quivering and I was busy telling the story. And she was, the, the principal of the school was, Jody, every Jewish child has the right to a Jewish education. She's in. Yes. You don't have to finish the story. And that did help so much because it gave me perspective that, as my husband says, you know, it's not always like that. And that really helped. And then another Jewish day school heard of our story, reached out to us and took Kayla in with open arms. And we saw that how much Jewish leadership can have an impact because one school, they made it their goal to include her. They said they will make it work no matter what. And they embraced her and that was the attitude of the parents. It was the attitude of the leadership. It was the attitude of the teachers. I sort of say, if water's tainted at its source, then water's tainted. But when the leadership wanted my child, so did the whole community. Um, and it became one of those battlegrounds because I could land up walking in the street or be in a supermarket and people would attack me. I was so glad there wasn't a pick and pay hypermarket where you see everybody all the time. <laughs> I, was, I was like, and I would That's be That's where things happen. That's where things happen. <laughs> That's where we get all our info from. <laughs> I was like so glad that. I mean, I was, I, it would be people would attack me and they would be like, so you, Jody Samuels, you the one who wants your like special needs child to come to our school or other people would applaud me. And I realized then that I had to take a stand and I had to stand up for what was right. So it was a very hard journey, but I was able to reframe it because I did have key supporters and key people who showed me what Jewish leadership in fact did look like. Absolutely. And, and in time and in future years, your children will know what that looks like and what it sounds like and what it feels like to have a mother who has their backs and who speaks out for them and who speaks up for them. And I think that's, that's a vital lesson for them. And, and you do describe in the book that, that your children with your older two children were still at the school that that didn't want Kayla to attend. And your son, um, Meron, came and asked you about it. And you didn't want to badmouth the school for him. And you explained it to him in terms that he would understand at the time. But I think in future years, they will come to understand it and they will realize what you had done, not just for Kayla, but for them as well. Absolutely, and I didn't want my, I didn't want to pay for school fees, and one day my child, children would wake up and they'd say, but where was my community? Where was my school? Where were my rabbis? And be all disillusioned. So I had to move them to an environment where they would see an alternative, um, to the negative that they would have seen in that school. Absolutely. 
When did you decide to write the book? So I've been writing a blog for many years called Metro Ema, and it was a very popular blog, and people loved the blog, and everybody said to me, Jody, you have to write a book. You have to write a book. But then there were always the naysayers, do you know how much time it takes? You don't make money from books, uh, but nobody reads books, and you had... I, I Sorry, had what? Books. Nobody reads... What was that? Nobody, nobody reads, reads books. Yeah, the only people who say that are the people who don't read. I had been asking you when you had decided to write the book, after all that you had been through and and all your journeys and your travelling and your travelling, your challenges, your settling, when did you actually decide to write the book? And how long did it actually take you to write? Okay, so, as I, so I had this very popular blog that everybody said I should write and that turned it into a book. When I made Aliyah for three years, I had it in my calendar, book, twice a week. I was going <laughs> to write the book, but nothing actually happened. And then last year, a person, um, Mrs. Fachter, who was very instrumental in my journey, passed away. And after her funeral, I landed up being in this crazy situation. I took a group. I left straight from the funeral to take a group to Morocco. We took we take Jewish heritage groups, and I had this mixed group of participants, religious, not religious, and we were in Marrakesh for Shabbat. And the way it works in Marrakesh is you go to these families that host tourists for meals. And in this group where we were, there was my group of like 25 mixed participants, and then there was a group of Hasidim, Alexander Hasidim, 30 men who had come for someone's 50th birthday to Morocco, and they were also there, only men, and I decided, because I'm very famous for making the chimes and my making everybody drink a glass of wine with me in every event, I stood up and decided to make a lechaim in honor and Mrs. Nechaim, uh, Mrs. Fafler's neshama. And I start making this lechaim, and I tell my story, and I see these chassidim staring at me, 30 men, like, looking at me. And I definitely didn't look like the typical woman in their world or someone who would normally be giving them, like, Torah, words of Torah. <laughs> and they're all staring at me. And afterwards, they came to tell me that they've never been so inspired. They can't believe they came all the way to Marrakesh and that this was the most inspiring thing they've ever heard. And they were, like, totally moved. And I made a decision that day that I actually have a voice and I have a message. And if I can get inspire a group of Hasidic men and I can inspire moms on my blog of Metro Ema, I have a voice and I, have a, and I wanted to make this mission to write my book happen. I came back from Morocco, set the ball in motion. That was in Mar- end of February last year. I started writing the book in March and... Here we are. I was going to have an original book launch after Pesach in South Africa, but COVID changed my plans. Okay, so I hope that sometime in the future that book launch in South Africa is still going to happen because we love our book launches. And, I mean, we love specifically book launches within the community. It's just those are just the best when when one of our own has has launched something. We just love to all come together and celebrate. There's just something special about that, and we're going to make that happen. That is definitely happening in the future. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to. We're not going to pin a date on it or a time, but it's going to happen, and you're <laughs> going to stand up and make us all drink a glass of wine to this book. Okay. 
<laughs> that is good. definitely happening. Okay. We're not going to say where or when, but sometime here in the future, we're having that launch and we're drinking a toast to the book. Something I ask all my guests, you're stuck on a desert island and which five books would you want to have with you? So I love historical fiction. Um, so any historical fiction where I feel that I can learn um, as someone who's traveled to 87 countries, I love wow. stories. Yeah, so I love historical fiction, whether it's about wars or about communism or it's about countries. So we read a lot of those kinds of books um, in my family where we can have a lot of meaningful discussions around those books. Um, I like reading autobiographies of famous people or people who really impacted the world and changed the world in their way. Um, and I do like um, reading books that are Torah wisdom, especially those written by women, because I think we don't hear enough female voices. Um, 100% right, I agree with you. Yeah, so those those are the kind of books I love to read. And I always, always read lots of magazines because I think that you have to keep up with topically what's going on in the world. So whether it's an economist or a time or a national geographic, I consume many of those. Brilliant. So so you're keeping your options open and not being very specific. Yeah, I can see. I can see. You'd make quite a good politician. Do you know that? <laughs> Yeah, being quite cagey, like not not nailing down anything definite. <laughs> um, you know, unfortunately in South Africa, I don't know what it's like in Israel, and I don't know what it's like internationally. I haven't, thank goodness, actually seen anything about this. But in South Africa, sadly, a lot of our companies that produce magazines have had to fold, and they we are going to see their shelves where magazines once sat. It's actually a very sad state of affairs. So, yeah, better grab those magazines while you can. Yes. Lodi, um, <laughs> it has been absolutely fantastic chatting to you rather than over WhatsApp and voice notes. It's been really, really lovely. Thank you so, so much for giving me your time. And I'm sure that, that whoever's listening has really enjoyed it. We have been chatting about Jolie's book, Chutzpah, Wisdom and Wine. And as I said, hopefully we will be getting that at the Kolal Bookshop next week. It's going to be 200 Rand. As soon as it's available, I will let you know, and you can rush over there and get the book. Jolie, Shabbat Shalom. Be safe and be well, you and your gorgeous family. Thank you, and Shabbat Shalom to you. Thanks so much. And to you, my lovely listener, stay safe, stay warm, and Shabbat Shalom until next time.